Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. All right, the story that's been percolating in this country all week long, there's a problem when a federal government minister spends $1,700 for limousine service for one day in Toronto. It's not rocket science. You're the health minister. 1700 bucks for one day for a limo. Apparently this wasn't noticed or appreciated by Jane Philpott at the time. The owner of the limo service, who had been a volunteer on Philpott's election campaign, has said he'll reimburse the money, describing, according to the National Post, the situation as petty political posturing. The owner of the limo service isn't the issue, nor are the rates that he charged or charges. The issue is a federal politician who saw nothing wrong with being limoed about Toronto at a cost which was frankly unnecessary. There's much less expensive transport available. Politicians have a history of playing fast and loose with expense accounts. Some have gone to jail for doing so. Even our lofty prime minister had an unlofty misuse of expense account rules. I'm just looking at a National Post story from 2014. I'll get to my guest in just a second. The, uh, he was then the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau. I wasn't Prime Minister yet, 2014. The Liberal leader disclosed Thursday that he wrongly claimed $840 in MP travel and living expenses incurred while he was actually moonlighting as a paid public speaker. He called them administrative errors and said he fully repaid the money as soon as he was made aware of the problem. I didn't know that I didn't know. According to Candace Bergen, who was then the Minister of State for Social Development in the Harper government, not only did Justin Trudeau take money from charities, he also took money from taxpayers and denied doing so right up until he was caught. Mr. Trudeau insisted his public disclosure and swift action to remedy the mistake shows he's setting a new standard of transparency. I'm now explaining that to Canadians because one of the most important things about my approach in politics has been creating a level of accountability, of transparency, of openness, of honesty that means admitting when mistakes were made, taking responsibility for them and fixing them in an open manner that hopefully will continue to restore Canadians' trust in our political system. Where's that little bag they give you on airliners? Mr. Trudeau's disclosure was not entirely voluntary, however. I love the way the story continues. The House of Commons reviewed his expense claims after the NDP won unanimous consent last spring, including from Mr. Trudeau himself, for an examination of parliamentary resources used by MPs who engage in paid public speaking. He made uh, $1.3 million on the public speaking circuit since 2006. That's, that would be eight years including 277,000 from 17 groups since he was first elected in 2008. The story kind of contradicts itself. I'm not reading it correctly. Uh, The groups who paid for his speeches included charities and nonprofit entities such as school boards, municipalities, and universities. So you take money, you're elected as a member of parliament, you get paid a decent buck, you've got an expense account, and then you take money from charities to speak to charities... And then you bill the taxpayer 
for living expenses and travel expenses while you're going to and from those speaking engagements where you're billing charities. But hey, it was all just a mistake. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So what was that term again? Oh yeah, administrative errors. That 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 was it. Administrative errors is what the uh, prime minister said he uh, he was guilty of. Administrative errors. Then there was the um, there was the conservative minister who upgraded from a four star to a five star hotel in um, in London, and she did that only because. She, she really liked a certain brand of orange juice. And you could only get that certain brand of orange juice in the five-star hotel. So who could blame her? I mean, you have to have the orange juice that you like, even if it's 18 bucks a glass. Isn't that correct, Ms. Oda? Oh, my goodness. Here's Michelle Simpson, the truth teller. Well, good afternoon, Roy. Good afternoon, and Michelle. And it's a pleasure being on. And Beth Oda didn't upgrade her hotel specifically for the orange juice. She was looking for a hotel that would accommodate smokers, which really actually makes it worse. But that said, that that's the real story. How sad is that? It is. How sad is that? And she hired a limo to chauffeur her to the original hotel that was hosting the meeting that she was there to attend. So, I mean... I don't know why I'm laughing. You know what? I don't know what part of this, you know, how, uh, you know, Minister Philpot could have uh, lost the memo on this one. Like, I don't know where she's been when all of this was going on, Duffy, but, you know, it was just incredible to me by the way, the $1,700 limo bill didn't include the $223 tip. Oh, which we paid for, too, right? Of course. Of course. So it was $1,923. Well, what's a couple of bucks between friends? Yeah, well, we've got Oda that's been dubbed the, you know, the Anita Bryant of uh, uh, ministers, and now we've got the limo queen. For the liberals. <laughs> now, so you you are the person, you are the member of parliament. You were elected in, tell us 2008. what 2008. 2008. Yeah. And uh, you immediately began to post your expenses online. Yeah, because I w- was midway, th- it was midway through the fiscal year. So I took over from the previous member. And March 31st is the year end. But June is when they actually give you the final numbers from finance of where you were. And on in July, mine were up. July 2009. Right. So you, uh, you post your expenses online. Everything's fine. You're informing your constituents yes. what you're spending the Canadian taxpayers' money on as far as your expensing is concerned, your travel, your accommodation, the things that you're allowed to expense when you're operating on behalf of the people as a member of the federal legislature. Now, That's right. when did you first realize that you were the only one doing this? 
Well, I, I understood that I probably was the only one, but it wasn't for that reason that I did it. I promised to do that, and that was a promise that I could keep. I, you know, any promise you make for a party, you can't necessarily keep. But people were, that I was talking to were fed up with the piggies at the trough, they used to call it. Right, and we but still well, are. Uh, you know what? It, uh, it'll be up there. You may not like it. You may disagree with how I spend the money, but it will be up there. So it's up there, and you keep it updated, and your constituents and any Canadian can go to your website at any yeah. time, and they can see what Michelle Simpson, the Liberal Member of Parliament for was it Scarborough West? Yeah. Scarborough Southwest, yeah. Close enough. Yeah. Let's not niggle on the on, on, okay. on compass points, okay? <laughs> what, what, the, what the the member of parliament for Scarborough Southwest is charging for expenses. Everybody can see it. Everyone can see it now. Yep. When is the first ripple of discontent coming your way? When, when, when did the ripple start that eventually turned into a tsunami of anger, frustration, and a command appearance in Michael Ignatius's office. What was the first inkling that you were not doing what you were expected to do? Well, there was just little ripples, you know, from members of my own party. You know, you've just opened a can of worms. You're going to be sore you went there, but nothing serious. When the tsunami hit wasn't until May 2010 when the Board of Internal Economy decided that they were not going to allow Sheila Fraser, the then AG, to audit their any expenses in Parliament. I remember that. And the press was all over this, like white on rice. And that's when it really, the proverbial, you know what, hit the fan for me. And Mr. Ignatieff, as I recall, the yep. liberal leader at the time, took great exception to any notion that the Auditor General for Canada yep. would in fact audit expense spending of members of Parliament, including him, and he said the Auditor General serves at the pleasure of Parliament. Exactly. So there. Exactly. And so I, it, I, it was essentially thrown under the bus. And yes, I was threatened. They tried to wheedle. They tried everything. And I kept saying, <laughs> you know, there's just no way that I can back, I would back down, that I can back down. And do you know how bad this would look for the party? So it wasn't just about me. That You know, people would know, and the, the media would know, that somehow I got coerced into backing down. But I hadn't done anything wrong, which is why I find this phenomenal that, you know, now, you, you, you take money, you spend money like crazy, and you get caught, and all you have to say is, sorry, uh, I'll pay some of it back, and all's forgiven. You put it out there, and you're treated like the common criminal. <laughs> you're the criminal because, yeah. because you're, you're being responsible, but what you're doing is you're creating problems for all the rest of the boys and girls. But this is precisely why that they're afraid. There's a lot more of this. And there always was, even when I was sitting. That's what they were always afraid of. 
But that wasn't my problem. You know, my, my responsibility was to my constituents right. and to Canadians in general. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament for Scarborough Southwest, the honest one, the honest one who got into such um, trouble for being honest with her constituents about expense spending. So we got some calls here, Michelle. People want to get in uh, their thoughts. We have a few minutes. Just walk us through, because not everybody has, has heard your story, of, of what was done to you, what the persuasion, the attempted persuasion was, and then what happened when they pulled out the, uh, the bully stick and went after you. Well, they tried to persuade me with an office, an empty office that had a, its own private washroom. And I was supposed to be, you know, drooling over that, and that didn't work. Um, they, the, the worst part was actually being gagged. And because the shunning, I thought, oh, I can, I can take that one because, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. But when I was gagged, that affected my ability to do my job as I saw it. And I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous. They did everything. If they could have thrown me out of caucus, but they really didn't have the guts to do that. Because I think Canadians would have said, wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? Oh, big time. So, and and Michael Ignatieff was directly involved. Oh yeah, no, I was called to the principal's office not once but twice. And you were told, "Stop it." Yep. And Stop I it. Said, no. And you said no to them, if I if I recall correctly, you said to them, "Why don't you do what I do?" Yep. I said that to the leader, and I said that that would put you out in front, and he said. Well, we can't do that. But you're making everybody look bad. And I said, no, they're making themselves look bad. <laughs> you're, making, you're making everybody look bad. Michelle, if you just stopped telling the truth, everybody would look good. Yeah, exactly. That was the message. Stop telling yeah. the truth, Michelle. That's it. Stop it. And then they Stop shut you down. Stop your promise. You're right. The awful part was when they gagged you, they shut you down, they said you can no longer speak in Parliament, and you did not have the right to acknowledge the fact that a constituent of yours, young man in the Canadian Armed Forces, was killed in Afghanistan. And also, I had a police officer in Toronto Police Services that was killed, and I couldn't even stand on that. So there was two that I couldn't stand on for member statements. How do these people look themselves in the... And they put it in writing. You know what you have to do to get your speaking privilege back. Really? And I got those emails. You know, and I I thought, I'm going to hang on to these. Someday I'll tell my grandchildren. (laughs) You shared with me what the rules rules are for expense spending. And it's cut and dried. There's, there's not a lot of leeway, plus people just generically understand if it's not parliament-related, parliamentary business-related, MP-related, yep. don't expense it. You, and if you exactly. are expensing it, like 1700 bucks for a limo, or 682 or $862, as Mr. Trudeau uh, billed 
for accommodation and travel while he was speaking to charities and taking money from charities as an elected member of parliament. He then called it an administrative error. Really? Oh, you know what? It's an administrative error when you're caught. Yeah. And that, that's all there is to that. I mean, the longer this goes on, and it doesn't change. Well, I'm doing politics differently. No, I don't think so. I don't see anything that indicates that, Roy. Yeah. I want to share a story with you. You know it, but not all of my listeners know it. And we'll take some calls in the minutes we have left. I have to share this story because it involves um, a broadcaster in this country known as the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And the CBC receives over a billion taxpayer dollars annually to run their organization, their operation. A number of years ago, I started the pursuit of an individual who had run over and killed a seven-year-old boy in Hamilton. It was, the case was cold case. It was 19 years it had lain dormant because the charge, criminal negligence causing death, was not extraditable. He was an American draft evader. He'd come to Canada, had a job here, had gone to a Christmas party, had run over and killed little Joey Bellany, seven years of age, dragged him 600 feet under his car with kids with his brothers and sisters screaming, Joey's under your car, Joey's under your car. When Joey eventually spilled out from under uh, Thomas Martin's car, another vehicle ran over the little boy, and he was, he was killed. So 19 years after, the, oh, and so Martin then escapes to the United States. He runs off, and he gives interviews from the U.S. saying, I'm not coming back to face charges in Canada. I have my own family to raise, and off he goes. 19 years later, somebody alerted me to the fact that the charge was extraditable, so I started the pursuit of Thomas Martin, and nobody wanted to assist me. Nobody in Canadian media thought there was a chance of finding him. I found him pretty quickly. Well, I had some help from, uh, from a reporter of the Hamilton Spectator. That's a long story. Um, so Martin is, uh, is, is brought back to uh, Canada. He's extradited. He's actually put in prison. He's kept in prison for a year. He fights extradition. And eventually the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal, one level of court below the Supreme Court of the United States, rules him extraditable. So they bring him back in cuffs. He's on the front pages of newspapers across Canada. He's in every newscast, and people are interviewing me. So the CBC, the National, sends a reporting crew and one of their senior reporters to CHML Radio in Hamilton to interview me. We sit in the studio for an hour. Blah-dee-dee, 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 blah. On and on and on they go. And I know they're going to use about 30 seconds of it. Eventually, I said, guys, I have work to do. Please leave. So, Michelle, about an hour later, I'm in my office. The phone rings. <laughs> and it's CBC. Only this time it's CBC News World. And they said, we would like you to, uh, we'd like to interview you. And I said, well, why don't you just use tape that the National has, because they were just here interviewing me for an hour. And they said, well, you know, we'd like to, but, but, but they won't share it with us. <laughs> what? You're the same, yeah, we know we're the same organization, but they won't share it with us. And we want you on our channel before you're on their channel. So, and, and our broadcast goes to air at 7 p.m., theirs goes to air at 9 p.m. So we'd like you to be here in Toronto uh, for 7 p.m. And here's what we're willing to do. We're going to send a limo to, uh, to Hamilton for you and your wife, you get in the limo, you come into Toronto, 
We'll put you up at the Royal York Hotel. You'll have dinner on us. You'll have a wonderful night's uh, at the Royal York. You'll have breakfast on, on us. And then we'll limo you back to Hamilton in the morning so you can do your radio program. In the meantime, we will have had the opportunity to speak to you before the national airs. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, this is a grand. This is at least a thousand bucks we're talking about here. Because, and, and they're competing with themselves using taxpayer money. Exactly. And, and I said to them, you know what? You people are, I used Not- a certain, yeah, that, that was one of the words I used. And I said, I'll get in my car. I will drive to Toronto. I'll do your newscast, and then I'll drive home. You don't need to, oh, no, we have to at least give you $400. Why? Well, that's that's the fee. We have to give you at least 400 bucks. So I drove in. I did the report. A few weeks later, I got the check for $400. But this is what they were willing to do using taxpayer money, and that's just an extension of how government spends money, I'm sure. They don't care. They don't care. Yep. They don't, and nobody pushes them. Nobody pushes them. Well, I think in uh, Minister Philpott's case, the outcry, and Canadians have to do more of this as it's uncovered. I, you know, I still don't get how they think they'll get away with it, but, you know, it, it's a shaming. There has to be a public shaming. There does. And and we are just the people to do it because it's our money. I have time for a couple of minutes for a couple of quick calls and opinions here on what you've heard and what you've been hearing. Margaret in Whitby, Ontario. Margaret, what do you want to say? I, I just want to say I'm, I thank you, Roy and uh, Michelle, and I sure wish there was more people like you in the world. And uh, this is awful. It makes me want to cry because really this is, we, what are we going to do to stop this? I know it's shamed her this Jane lady, but we really, it's, it's, it's in all of the governments and, and, and all of the, like, I, I just, I, I, just I don't you. have any, any respect for the politicians today. And, and that's sad because they, they should be all of them putting their expenses out for us all to see. Exactly. Margaret, thank you very much for the call. Andrew is in Toronto. Andrew, go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. How you doing, Roy? Good, sir. I, I echo that last caller's sentiments in terms of Michelle. Thank goodness. Problem is, that's the exception, not the rule. I'm wondering if we're going to see an expense for uh, Justin Trudeau after he goes to the tragically hip concert with his wife tonight. Um, it, 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 to me, it's just ridiculous, and this is part of the issue. And I and the media is partly to blame because I hear them kind of making it sound like it's a trivial amount of dollars. And, you know, Rob Ford kind of had it right. But the problem, Rob Ford didn't go far enough. He's got to say every dollar matters. And that's what needs to be talked about. The big dollars, the big scandals like e-health, like the gas plant scandal, and the small dollars. It's not their money. And therefore, they have to be accountable to the people that vote them in. And it should be totally transparent on every account. And I, I, like I say, I laud Michelle for trying to do that, and I hope another politician comes along that can kind of make uh, make uh, some hay with this uh, issue and make it more transparent right, so Andrew. we uh, get our money looked after. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the call, Michelle. There's always been, and there will continue to be, great gratitude uh, to you for doing the right thing. I'm still trying to be Donna Quixote and going, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fighting the windmills. So the fact that I'm not sitting is actually a bonus because I can go after them all. 
with no partisanship. And you are completely nonpartisan. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for what you continue to do for us. And I'm looking forward to talking to you at 4.30 Eastern and whatever the other time zones are around the with world. With the other beauties? I can't wait. With the other beauties. Talk to you later. Okay, thanks, Roy. Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police want legislation which would compel anyone, if a judge agrees, to make their Internet passwords available to police. Many lawyers believe this will not become law in this country because of charter rights. And so my thinking here is that if police have reason to believe that there's a terror plot, for example, and many innocent people are being targeted in the terror plot like we've seen in Orlando or Paris or the UK, and and police have access, if they have access to the to passwords of people who are plotting this, let them have the passwords. If a judge signs on, let the cops have the passwords. So that no one later would say, well, if we'd only had the passwords. And you, you remember the, the controversy over the San Bernardino uh, situation with those two mass murderers. And... Uh, and in, in the, in the call for the access, the FBI wanted access to um, the password for, for a um, smartphone that they had. It wasn't even their smartphone. It belonged to the, the town, the city. It was a city issue. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just trying to approach this from what to me is a common sense perspective. David Fraser is a lawyer. He's Canada's foremost Internet privacy lawyer. I have a lot of respect and a lot of time for Dave. He's been very kind with giving us his time and his expertise on this program. He's a partner with McKinnis Cooper in Halifax, works with Fortune 500 corporations, and operates the Canadian Privacy Law blog. David, it's uh, good to have you uh, with us. Before we get to the legal issues, is there a pragmatic case to be made for the chiefs of police call for civilians' electronic online passwords being made available to the police in the event the concern level about public danger posed by an individual or a group of people is high. If we just can step outside the law for a moment, and 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 and, and I'll ask you this: Is there a pragmatic, um, is there a pragmatic reason to to support that position by the chiefs? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, this isn't one of those initiatives that they've just kind of pulled out of thin air. And I'm not going to suggest that the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police just kind of pull things out of out of thin air. But absolutely, I, I think that there's a, a reasonable case to be made in certain circumstances where law enforcement or national security authorities should be able to get access to device passwords or to uh, Internet account passwords or, or things like that. Uh, it's all a matter of how can this be done or can it be done, kind of going back to the legal stuff, sorry, that's just a habit of mine, uh, can it legally be done within our existing context within our, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the sorts of scenarios that, that you just outlined, outlined and, uh, and tweeted about previously, if there's kind of an imminent plot and you think that kind of getting access to the contents of a particular phone uh, would be able to thwart that, would be able to save some lives. Absolutely, there's a pragmatic case to be set. And, and in so many cases in our legal system, 
that you have a balancing. And when somebody's life is on the line, when somebody's innocence also is on the line, uh, other rights tend to give way. And then it's all a matter of the balancing that we have in our uh, in our legal system. And so, but but I do have concerns, some real concerns with this sort of initiative, because it really does dramatically depart from our traditions of not requiring somebody to actively participate in their own prosecution, and also the sorts of scenarios that this kind of most readily leaps to mind to, kind of the the ticking time bomb or anything else, those, those sorts of things. Uh, I'm not sure that these powers would actually be useful in those circumstances, because what they're proposing is that you'd have to go to a judge to get that. And uh, and that would take, now you can't do it over the phone, um, but that takes a, a fair amount of time. You have to put forward a, a significant case. And it does sound like a little bit the pragmatism that goes along with, let's say, now this might sound a little extreme, but supporting torture to say that, hey, look, Lives could be on the line, so your individual physical autonomy and your individual well-being has to give way to that. Um, and so these are the sorts of really important issues that are at play that we need to talk about. And I'm, I'm glad that the chiefs of police have put this on the table for us to talk about. You know, I, I go back to the San Bernardino case and the reluctance and the unwillingness by Apple to provide the FBI assistance in, uh, in, in, in a way to break down the securities uh, of the phone and to discover what the password is. And, and one of my biggest concerns at that time was, and I think it, was, it wasn't just mine, it was shared by many people, what if there is a broader plot? What if there are more cells? What if there, there's more uh, intent to create the kind of um, mass murder that took place in San Bernardino? And there are people engaged in in putting all this together with the with the with the apprehension or with the killing of the two um, terrorists that may very well accelerate had there been uh, accelerate the plan to to commit more mass murder so the passwords should have been immediately made available it shouldn't have been a fight about how to do it even if the password was not readily uh, discernible Apple or any tech company should have in my view done whatever they could to provide the FBI with the information that they required, just on the chance that they could head off more mayhem, more murder, more catastrophe. Yeah, and, and I, I certainly I appreciate where you're coming from, but I, I would disagree with you on that one for, for a number of reasons. One is that the password wasn't available, that, that Apple would have to put together a team in order to break the security that they've taken the time to, to put together. And that security is what protects the privacy and security of everybody who walks around with an iPhone, which probably includes a large number of FBI officers, which also includes a large number of police officers. And so in order to accomplish that objective, everybody else who walks around with an iPhone would have been inherently vulnerable. And the FBI said, oh, well, you could keep it secret. You guys are good at that. Well, we've just seen in the last week that Russia managed to hack the NSA and get access to their secret keys. And we also saw in the last two weeks, Microsoft accidentally releasing encryption keys uh, for the encrypted bootloader on that, on Windows 10. And so to say that, oh, well, this will never have those sorts of cascading repercussions, the FBI managed to crack into those phones and found nothing of, of interest. And so while certainly it, it relates to this whole kind of going dark phenomenon that the police are talking about, the two are quite different, because in the case of, of San Bernardino shooters, they were dead. They were gone. 
And actually, the city of San Bernardino, because that was a city-issued iPhone, they could have put in place measures to allow those phones to be, or that phone to be unlocked. They should have. And a whole lot of companies that manage uh, kind of fleets of devices mm. put those uh, put those sorts of measures in place. But I don't think you should be able to order, even with a judge, to issue an order that negates the security of devices across the board. Okay, I went beyond what the Canadian chiefs of police are asking for or suggesting. In that scenario that I created uh, or yep. that I ran by, I went beyond what, they, what they're asking for. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. David, I just want to go back to September 11th, 2001, because we have the anniversary coming up. The 15th anniversary is coming up, and in Gander, there's going to be a um, special recognition on the 10th and 11th. And it's uh, being put on by the uh, city of Gander and by the uh, Wounded Warriors Canada. 9-11 changed the course of history for Canada and Canadians. Over 40,000 CAF members served in Afghanistan. 158 military lives were lost. Many others were wounded, some very seriously, in a manner which will affect them for the rest of their lives. Um, if we... And I, you can accuse me of reaching here, but... I've just watched this world in the last couple of years, Paris, Brussels, London. You know this. You know the stories. You know the tragedies, Nice, um, Dakar. You know, so many, so many places. So much tragedy. If you knew, or if you had reasonable suspicion, if you had reasonable evidence that would point to another horrific event to take place and that information that would disclose the participants and the actions they were likely to to take undertake were hidden behind a series of passwords what would you do can you can you play by the can you play by the rules that we put in place when the world is a more peaceful place i i'm going to hand the floor is yours i'm not i'm not a lawyer I'm, I don't understand the specifics of the law. I just know what I've covered, the stories I've covered, and the tragedies I've covered, and the people I've talked to. And anyway, go ahead. Well, way to throw a softball question there, Roy. Um, yeah, that, that, I don't, I'm not at all unsympathetic to all of that. The one thing that I know for sure is that those who perpetrate terrorism offenses and terrorism generally against us and against the West uh, – would be delighted to see us surrender our fundamental democratic values as a, as a response. That's part of the reason for for terrorism, and so and I think that that we need to be um, that we need to be strong in the ideals that distinguish us from those who would like, for example, a theocratic state uh, or an authoritarian state. And what makes us different in 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 no small measure. Uh, is the, the, are the legal rights and the values that we have enshrined in, in documents like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or the Bill of Rights in the, in the United States, that we shouldn't be surrendering, the, surrendering those so, so readily. And I haven't seen any examples of, of cases where, and certainly we've seen massive amounts of police and national security overreach since 9-11, but I haven't seen any example where, in fact, that has uh, made ourselves safe. 
all it has put in place is is what's often what has been referred to as turnkey totalitarianism, which is the the ability of the government through the massive amount of warrantless, suspicionless surveillance that they do on all of our communications, particularly international communications, uh, so that if a bad guy were to become elected and and look south of the border, it could happen. Um, that uh, that all of the infrastructure would be in place for that for that to happen in our system. If you knew that somebody, or if you had reasonable, probable grounds to believe, or or even stronger, that, that somebody was engaged in a in a terrorism plot, you could not require that person to speak to a police officer. That's a bedrock value in our uh, in our system. And yes, people could die, but the reality is is that that value is what is one of the important checks and balances in our in our system. And I'm not at all unsympathetic. And, and as I said earlier, I'm glad that the Canadian Association of Chiefs and Police put this out there as a proposal, because I think it's something that we need to talk about. And, and there may be a solution. So, for example, what I've seen previously for things that, that, that CAPCP has advocated for, which is lawful access, so the ability without a warrant to get access to information about Internet communications. Well, all of the examples given relate to terrorism and child pornography and, and really heinous crimes. Uh, but when it's actually implemented or, or when the rubber hits the road, uh, let's say in, in Bill C-30 a couple of years ago, when their lawful access proposal was put in the form of a, of a bill, your mayor would have been able to get access to your communications for a parking ticket and actually for no offense whatsoever. And so maybe if you want to implement this where it is so such a significant impact on some of our fundamental values you reserve it only for those cases for those crimes for those offenses uh, where the stakes are that high but absolutely under no circumstances should something like this be put in place uh, for a parking ticket I wasn't talking about a parking ticket and I know you're not uh, lacking in empathy either uh, we're living in a world where from day to day we don't know what's going to happen we don't know what's going to happen. We've been exposed to the most horrific of circumstances. We've been exposed to them again and again. Um, but, I just but, go back. Let me just, let me just, let me just, let me just, let me just say this to you, David. Let me just say this to you. Eliminate tens of thousands of deaths every year. David, you would outlaw cars, but we're not prepared. David, to do no, that in please, our society. please. Let's stay with the subject here. Um, I go back to the year after nine eleven. I did a broadcast from uh, New York on the anniversary at WOR Radio. And um, the night before, we went to St. Paul's Church, which was right across from where the World Trade Center stood. And on the fence around the church, there are thousands and thousands of personal messages um, to loved ones to um, say thank you to police, firefighters, you know, you can imagine. I mean, maybe you've seen it. I don't know. But there was one sign. Yep. There was one small sign that I will never forget. Little piece, of, little piece of cardboard was attached to the fence. And in a child's writing, it said, I love you, Daddy. That made such a huge impression on me. And, and, and looking at Paris, looking at Brussels, look, I don't want to go through, the, through all, the whole list. But it is going to happen again. We're told it's going to happen again. We've been told it's going to happen again by security experts, that it is, inf that, that it is real, that we are going to get hit. All I'm saying is, is if you have the information that it's going to happen, and now to corroborate that information or to stop it from happening, 
you need to get behind some passwords, we have a decision to make. That's all. That's all I'm saying. And I'm not, I know you're not lacking in empathy. I know you're approaching this from the perspective, the legal perspective, and the fact that we have a charter and we have a constitution, and in the United States they have a Bill of Rights, and they're well thought out, and they've been, they've been developed over years and over centuries. But what's happened over the last 15 years has changed so much of the dynamic of the way our society operates and runs. It, it's, just, it's just where I am. It's just, that's where I stand. Well, and, and for me, it's not that I'm clinging to just the words of the Charter. I'm clinging to the spirit that that represents. It's a free society. I understand and, and, that. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not prepared to hand that over uh, because of fear of these sorts of things. Well, it's not fear of. It's not, it wouldn't be a case of saying, well, I'm afraid this might happen, so let's just go and do a little bit of a, of a, of a hunt, like an Easter an egg hunt for passwords. No. We have specific information specific information which leads us to believe, leads us to understand that something horrific is going to happen, is planned. We know who the players are. Now we need to get at their information. The information's hidden behind their passwords. What do we do? I guess sooner or later, or sooner than later, we're going to have to deal with that. Well, I think so. And it's good to have a discussion about it now when it's not in the aftermath of, let's say, a Parliament Hill shooting or something else like yeah. that, where we can have it in a rational sort of dispassionate way and we can be respectful of people's views without uh, absolutely mongering and, and demonizing, which not, often happens in, in the aftermath of, of that. Uh, yeah, but I, I, don't believe, I don't believe I'm fear-mongering. I'm, oh, no, not, not, no not, I'm not saying you are. I'm saying that we're actually having a rational, sensible discussion yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, and, and But too often these discussions take place Afterwards. in the aftermath and, and, and also at the same time, uh, police and law enforcement, national security, and, and others tend to overreach. Well, you're right, because in the aftermath, you can have knee-jerk reactions that do lead to overreaching, and then you really compromise your society far too significantly. Well, and, that's it. And, and, and I think part of, this, part of this proposal put forward by the chiefs is that um, it reflects the reality that the only person in Canada who can unencrypt un and, and crack a smartphone in terms of a manufacturer, is BlackBerry. And because Apple is outside of Canada, Google is outside of Canada, uh, Nokia is outside of Canada, Microsoft is outside of Canada. And so even if they had an order, and frankly, they could get one. It's called an assistance order. It's provided for in the criminal code. Uh, it's not going to be effective because there's nobody within the jurisdiction of the court. So this is, in fact, an, an interesting way of dealing with the Canadian reality, where the only manufacturer of smartphones is uh, is BlackBerry. Yeah, the world has changed so much in the last 15 years, and uh, I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to change a lot more in the next 15. David, it's, I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I do. I, I, I learn from my conversations with you. We don't always agree. Most of the time we do. But 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 I learn from my conversations with you, and I appreciate well, it. I'm, I'm always, always happy to chat. Thanks. David Fraser from McKinnis Cooper in Halifax, one of the world's leading experts, legal experts on the issue of Internet and privacy law. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I just find when I hear these young people who are involved in athletics and who are participating in the Olympic Games, when they're interviewed, you just cannot help but be impressed 
with them, not just as athletes, but as people. They're just really good young people with a with a just a positive outlook on life. Uh, they undergo tremendous emotional stresses, I'm sure, as they head up to their toward their events. Now, think about this: you've gone through all of the training. You've participated at the national level sufficiently well that you have either won the uh, the country's top athletic awards or you're good enough, you've been close enough, that you still meet the Olympic standard and you make your way to Rio. And now you're competing against the world's best, the rest of the world's best. And it's people that you meet and uh, friendships that you form. And But I'm sure the stresses and the pressures with the exception of a couple of Ned Wits, American swimmers. What's wrong with Lochte? Man needs help. Anyway, with the exception of the obvious, these are really remarkable young people. And, it, you know, it, we're not just talking about the people who made it to the Olympics. I'm talking about the young people who compete. I think they... Um, they develop their social interaction skills. They're just really good. And some of the interviewers are pretty bad. They're just bad. I sometimes feel, I feel, I feel sorry for the athletes who have just finished an event. And then they have to go and answer dopey questions. Oh, you must feel terrible, uh, you know, you didn't do as well as you thought you wanted to, and sir, you must feel terrible standing here talking to me. No, actually, I'm, I'm quite happy. I, I, I feel privileged to, you know, to be here, and I feel privileged to have been able to participate, and I'm not unhappy at all. I, I did the best. Oh, you must, no, no, you must feel terrible. Just leave them alone. And then today, and over the last uh, days of the Olympics in Rio, the name of Castor Semenya is being talked about again. And Castor Semenya is favored to win the gold medal in middle distance, uh, the 800 meters for sure. But there's still talk about her much higher than usual testosterone level for a woman. Uh, some still argue she should be competing against men. The IAAF and the IOC drafted regulations to limit the amount of natural testosterone allowed in the bodies of female athletes. And uh, after winning the 800-meter race of the World Championships in Berlin in 2009, Castor Semenya of South Africa was ordered to undergo a gender test by the IAAF. And my guest raced against Castor Semenya in the 2009 World Championships 800-meter race, as well as in 2008's Beijing Olympic Games, as she represented Australia at the 800-meter distance, my guest also won the gold medal at the 2009 World University Games in Belgrade. My guest is Madeline Pape. Uh, she represented Australia, as I said, in the 800-meter uh, race uh, in Beijing. And uh, Madeline, thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, to join us. I, I was reading that you said after uh, the 2009 race, when Castor Semenya beat you, the new story from the Sydney Morning Herald was Pape was, quote, really pissed off, end quote, <laughs> about about Semenya. 
Was she beaten by someone with an unfair intersex advantage, which the IAAF virtually declared? Goes on to say, Pape is now a graduate student in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One of her areas of research interest is gender equality in sport. She now fully supports Castro Semenya and posted a piece on her blog titled, Why I Now Stand with Castro Semenya, which I have read. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Hi, Roy. Thanks so much for having me. I, I should just say that I think in that interview after the race in 2009 when I said I was pissed off, it was actually at my own uh, my own poor performance in that race. You, you know, I, you're so hard on, each, on on yourselves as athletes. When right, you, yeah. You know, you really are. I, I, watch, I watch you and I'm so, I marvel at what you accomplish. And then I just see the competitive drive, that spirit of, wow, I can't wait to get out there again. No, you're right. I mean, I really, really liked that part about your um, your introduction when you said how athletes often talk about um, at the end of the race. Oh, well, I was unhappy about this bit and unhappy about that. And it's really hard sometimes to actually take a step back and appreciate how amazing it is to be a part of an event like the Olympic Games. It would have to be. So, so when you when you first ran again against and, and you lost to Castro Semenya, there was a lot of talk about her potential testosterone level, and women athletes as well as the IOC and the IAAF seemed greatly concerned about fairness of competition if Semenya had a biological advantage over other women that these women could not overcome through training, dedication, and combination of talent. That would have been in 08 and 09. Um, what is it that made you pay particular close attention to Castor Semenya, and what is her story to you? You've done the research. You testified uh, before a sports body, legal sports body, what is Castor Semenya's story? Yeah, geez, that's a. I mean, that's a really good question. I think uh, the story that we tell about Castor Semenya is a story uh, that really comes down to a lot of a lot of our anxieties about uh, how we understand the differences between male and female bodies and uh, what we think the implications of that are for sport. So. I mean, I, I think um, it's. You mentioned that I, I testified um, before the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and that case was about these regulations that the IAAF put in place uh, after the um, the Semenya uh, drama of, of 2009. And um, it's it's interesting that we often bring those regulations back back to Semenya, even though those regulations actually affect uh, many more women than just Semenya. But um, Yes, yeah, I so I guess in answer to your question, I feel like Semenya has become this uh, this stand-in for um, for all of these other anxieties. But at the same time, uh, when it comes down to it, she is the athlete that everyone is talking about and that everyone is is concerned about um, at these games. Even though the issue uh, is is much bigger than than just this one athlete. Well, what is it about to the IAAF and the IOC? What is the issue about to them? They ordered her to go and undergo a a, a sex test. After the um, after the '09 games, the World Championship. Yeah, so there's a history, uh, quite a long history, actually, in the sport of track and field and in Olympic sports. Though track and field is often at the forefront of this, uh, there's 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 a long history of, of uh, different forms of gender verification, and these were introduced in around the late 1950s, and they they started actually as a, a visual inspection of, of um, female athletes' genitalia by by doctors, um, and over time they they um, evolved, and and um, for for a while there they focused on chromosomes, 
than on DNA and, and in the most recent version on testosterone. And what's interesting is that each time uh, it hasn't been a human rights argument that has defeated these regulations. It's been actually a scientific argument um, because the reality is that there is no... Uh, there is no scientific way to differentiate between the male and female uh, bodies. We, we all exist along a spectrum and there's a lot of overlap uh, between the biological characteristics that, that make up our bodies. So, so it's an, an impossible task for scientists to figure out a, a single factor that they can use to then say, okay, one, uh, someone goes in this category and, and this other person goes in the other. She's not alone. Um, she's not the only woman with potentially elevated testosterone levels. And you've argued, if I understand correctly, Madeline, that there's no proof that elevated testosterone levels make the difference between a champion and just a competitor. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I like that you said uh, alleged elevated testosterone because I think uh, our listeners um, and all of us need to remember that we are all speculating about Castor Semenya's situation. We don't know the private details of of Semenya's biology. We don't know what she was asked to undergo by the by the IAAF, and we don't even know we don't even know actually if the decision by the Court of Arbitration for Sport last year is the reason why she has returned to form. We, we're, we're assuming that that's the case, but we don't know. Um, now I've actually lost my train of thought. Sorry, can you tell me the second part of your question again? Sorry, Roy. Well, it was uh, you've you've argued there's no proof that elevated oh. testosterone levels will make right. the difference between a champion athlete and and a competitor. Exactly. Yeah. So this was actually the this was actually the conclusion of the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They looked at the available evidence that had been given to them by the IAAF and by Judy Chan's legal team. Uh, and after a, a lot of very uh, deep consideration, they came to the conclusion that the evidence that the IAAF had provided to them uh, is insufficient to prove either that um, that testosterone should serve as the, as the means for differentiating, differentiating between male and female bodies, but also that what they were, I mean, this is actually the, the crux of it, what they were really unconvinced about was whether we can really say that testosterone has such an advantage that uh, if a woman has elevated testosterone levels, she would perform at the level of a male athlete, for example. So, I mean, uh, and I think that's obvious when we look at the results, that it's simply not the case. I mean, Casta Semenya's best time in the 800 metres wouldn't even qualify her for the South African National Championships if she was competing as a male athlete. So there just isn't evidence to suggest that there's this direct causal relationship between testosterone and performance, even though we're so invested in the idea that there is. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Castor Semenya, she's in the news. She actually, you know, I, I don't know if it's news or whether it's sports. It should be all about sports and her ability to run in the Olympic Games. But she's also news because the talk continues about whether she has an unfair advantage over other women athletes because of elevated testosterone levels. We're talking with Madeline Pape, who represented Australia at the Olympics and World Championships and is a graduate student in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And one of Madeline's areas of research is gender equality in sport, and she fully supports Castor Semenya. Check her blog. It's uh, There's a posting there, Why I Now Stand with Castor Semenya. 
So, Madeline, in the three minutes we have left, where do things stand now for women athletes who may have elevated testosterone levels? Right. And how, how, how do you tell? I mean, did you, do you just have to have testing of everyone? You can't do that. Um, and, and, and how are you? Let me ask you this. How are you viewed by women runners for supporting Castor Semenya? Well, to start with the, the, latter, the latter part of your question, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, across the, across, as far as all athletes are concerned, I don't know how um, my many of my teammates feel about my support for Castor, but at the same time, I receive a lot of messages of support from uh, people from all different sports and also people who um, are involved in the sport of track and field back home in Australia. I've received a lot of messages of support since I... Uh, since I publicly spoke out in support of Casper, so I think actually that the um, I think actually that there is a, a there's a diversity of opinions among the track and field uh, community. I don't think it's the case that there is a minority who are in support of Castor and a huge majority that are strongly opposed to her. I think there's a lot of people who are who really are sort of confused by uh, just the complexity of the issue and don't uh, aren't really sure uh, quite quite um, where they stand uh, as far as Casper Semenya's participation is concerned. Um, but as far as where we, where we go from here, I think you're right that we can't be testing every female athlete. And the, I guess the point is that the point I want to make is we don't need to test every single athlete because uh, we, need to, we need to get wrap our heads around the idea that, well, first of all, there is no such thing as a level playing field. There never has been and there's never going to be. I mean, every elite athlete is, is looking constantly for ways to give themselves a competitive advantage relative to their competitors. So so never has there been a level playing field um, in Olympic sports. And particularly when, when you're an athlete from a, a wealthy nation like Australia or, or Canada or the United States, I, I think... We're hardly people who can who can stand up and say that uh, accuse other people of having an unfair advantage when when we come from such uh, such privileged countries uh, when it comes to what we have available to us as, as athletes. Um, so my my feeling is that any woman who's been who has who's born a woman and has been recognised as a woman from the moment they they were born and has been continued to be recognised as a woman throughout their lives, there's, we have no we have no need to test these women for anything they are clearly women who belong in the female athlete category um there's women are a hugely heterogeneous group of human beings you know we, and all of them should have the right to compete um at the olympic games yeah we have 30 seconds left what is what does castor Semenya say to you about all of this I haven't been in personal contact with Semenya, but i i can tell you that i follow her on twitter and that she has um, really great tweets, so uh, so I can definitely recommend to any uh, Twitter followers um, listening to to get onto Casper Semenya's page and, and become a follower. Okay, well I um, I follow you now. Here Sport Roar is dot uh, com is your blog, and um, you're also at uh, mpape at wisc dot edu, right? That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Roy. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, congratulations on, on all of your achievements in sports. And and it's important that we take on the important issues and deal with them and talk about them and get them out in, in, into, into the public domain. Thank you, Madeline. We'll talk again. All the very best to you. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.